death of the testator. So we have that in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. First coming of Christ and the events that bring us up to the crucifixion and then, of course, the resurrection. And then you have the book of Acts. The book of Acts is a transitional book because it brings you from the Jew in Acts chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7 up to uh, the church age and then the revealing of the church age and how everything works. And it's, 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 it's an incredible process. And then the next book, once you get firmly into the church age by Acts chapter 20, the next book that he puts in there is the book of Romans. And the book of Romans fits right in because now that you're in the church age, fully vested, this is the book that tells you exactly as New Testament Christians what we are to believe and follow and the book of Romans is the doctrinal handbook for the New Testament church, uh, the body of Christ. Every chapter in Romans, he will go through and deal with a different issue that we as Christians need to know and understand. And in Romans chapter 11, this is where I want you to go. In Romans chapter 11, he deals with the gathering or regathering of the nation of Israel and the restoration of the nation of Israel, which is what we're studying, you know, as we come through uh, Proverbs chapter 30, and we've been looking at it out of the generation of Matthew chapter 24. Now, Romans chapter 9, 10, 11 are a little grouped together. Nine, chapter 9 shows you how the Jews got in the mess that they got in and lost everything. Chapter 10, we all know that is the great chapter for Gentile salvation. And uh, that we're in right now. Thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God hath raised thee from the dead. Thou shalt be saved. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord. That's all in Romans chapter 10. And then we go, so it shows you the Jew, why they got messed up. It going to the Gentiles, us. And then again in chapter 11, he shows us that God is not finished with the Jew. Now I want to read for you verses 25 uh, up to 29. Follow with me here. For I were not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. Now, there's seven mysteries in the Bible. And there's seven things that we are told in the New Testament not to be ignorant of. And actually, and I've said it many times, the average Christian is totally ignorant in, in these seven things. And they have no idea about the seven mysteries. But he says, lest you be wise in your own conceits. And here's what he's saying. That blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. Now look at verse 26. And so, once that happens, all Israel shall be saved, as it is written, there shall come out of Zion a deliverer, and shall turn away the ungodliness for Jacob. Now Israel's salvation is a national salvation. You'll never find anywhere, anywhere in the Bible where in the second coming of Christ or even the tribulation people period that God is coming in and saving people like you and I get saved in the church age. It's a whole different dispensation, which we know from our studies. But then he says in verse 27, for this is the covenant unto them that I shall take away their sins. Now here it comes. As concerning the gospel, he wants us to know this. We are not to be ignorant of this. As concerning the gospel, what you and I believe and what you and I preach, they are the enemies for your sakes. But as touching the election, that's God's, them being God's people, they are beloved uh, for the Father's sake. What he's saying here is that <clears throat> we need to understand that the Jews today may be our enemy, but we're not to be their enemy. 
And then he closes out verse 29, which is a verse that gets misquoted many, many times for the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. And how many times over the years somebody doesn't understand the words in the Bible and they think that the word repentance means that Israel doesn't have to repent. Uh, and of course, repentance in the Bible is never being sorry for what you do. Repentance in your Bible has never anything to do with forgiveness. Repentance in your Bible has to do with you going from one direction to another direction. And what he's saying here, that the direction is God is going toward the nation of Israel for the last 6,000 years, he's going to continue to go on. There's no turning around on that. And it's a great thing. Now, I said all that because I want to show you how your Bible... Now, turn over to Mark chapter 8. I want to show you how these things work. These things are very important if you're ever going to, at some point in your life, get your Bible together for you. And I want to show you something here. This is how your Bible works. There always has to be a chain of evidence in anything in the Bible, any doctrine in the Bible. And you don't have that chain of evidence, and there's six points to a chain of evidence. You've got to have all six. And uh, a lot of guys today want to make up heresies or doctrines out of the Bible that uh, do not fall in line with any paper trail of uh, anything that has to do with the Bible. And uh, now I want to show you Mark chapter 8, verse 22 and 26. This is a story, and I've told you a thousand times that every story in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John about anybody, any circumstance, mark it down, will be a picture in some way, shape, or form of God dealing with the nation of Israel and their spiritual condition. Watch this. I just read for you Romans chapter 11, verse 25 through 25, that blindness in part has happened to Israel. (laughs) Here we go. Verse 22, and he cometh to Bethesda, and they bring a blind man unto him, and besought him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand, and led him out of the town, where he had spit on his eyes, and he put his hands upon him, and asked him if he saw aught. Uh, And he looked up and said, I see men as trees walking. After that, he put his hands again upon his eyes, and he made him look up, and he was restored, and saw every man clearly. And he sent him away to his house, saying, Neither go into the town, nor tell it to any in the town. Now, this story here, this blind man, first of all, is a picture of the nation of Israel. And I want you to notice that God's son touches him two times. The first time he touches him, he doesn't see every man clearly. Picture of the first coming of Christ. Blindness in part has happened to Israel. The second time he touches his eyes will be a picture of the second coming of Christ. Notice the wording. He was restored. That's a picture of the restoration of the nation of Israel. And at the second coming of Christ, he sees clearly. Right now, the Jew doesn't see clearly. Some Jews get saved. Some Jews will come into the body of Christ and trust Christ. But the majority of them won't. Why? Because blindness in part has happened to Israel. So the first time this man who pictures the nation of Israel, Christ touches him, he doesn't see clearly. That's a picture of the first coming. The second time he touches him, picture of the second coming, he gets restored. And uh, he says in verse 24 the first time, which is, you know, every study of the Bible is going to have a lot of tremendous other studies. He says, I see men walking around like trees. (laughs) What a great study that is in the Bible. We don't have time to get into it today. Now, having said all that, let's look at our passage today. And again, oh yes, we are going to get deeper every week. We're going to get deeper and deeper into this thing as we just simply peel back the layers 
of everything that's going through and going on in the tribulation period. So I would like to read for you today, Proverbs chapter 30, verses 21 uh, through 23. For three things, uh, the earth is disquieted, disquieted. That means disturbed, tore up. Uh, and for four, which it cannot bear. Now here they are. For a servant when he reigneth, and a fool when he is filled with meat, for an odious woman when she is married, and a handmaid that is heir to her mistress. Jared, would you ask God's blessing on us this morning here as we get going? Now, look, we're going to get down deep today. So listen to everything I'm telling you. I'm going to go slow. I'm going to take my time. Uh, so far, in chapter 30, first of all, we saw 11 verses 11 through 14 was the generation. We spent a couple of weeks on that. Then in verse 15 and 17, the next thing we looked at was three things that are not satisfied. And I showed you how that these three things also fit into the tribulation period. Then we looked at 18, 19, and 20, and we looked at three things that are too wonderful, and we talked about those. Then uh, now today, verses 21, 22, and 23, three things that disquieteth the earth. And I want you to know that each one of these, as we come down through here, deals with something different. And the key is using your Bible. You don't need the Hebrew. You don't need the Greek. You just need your Bible, an English King James 1611 authorized version. And you just begin to let God unearth these things by comparing Scripture with Scripture, words with words, and building a trail of evidence that shows you exactly what you've got here. So let's look at these and we're going to get into some stuff this morning, so please bear with me. And I'm sure it's stuff out there that many of you people, if you've been around here any length of time, it's pretty much Bible 101, but um, we've talked about it before, but uh, you're going to see today. All right, first of all, a servant when he reigneth. Now, historically, that's where we want to start. This will be a story and a study that's found uh, back in your Old Testament in 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 26, and then next couple of chapters. And it'll be a story and a study about Jeroboam coming to power after the death of Solomon. Uh, Jeroboam under Solomon was one of his generals, one of his men. And the Bible says that Solomon saw him as being very capable. And uh, he, uh, he served Solomon under Solomon. He's a servant serving in his kingdom. And be, but he begins to plot against that kingdom. And after Solomon's death, he finagles and he actually splits the nation of Israel north and south, the ten northern tribes and the two southern tribes. And uh, this leads in time, as you'll see in a second, uh, to their downfall. Now, Jeroboam, in your Bible, just so we keep it all straight here, I've told you before that in the Old Testament that there's 18 men who are a picture of the Antichrist, who foreshadow in the things that they do exactly what the Antichrist is going to do. And when you put them all together, you get a complete composite, so to speak, of what the Antichrist is going to do. 
Jeroboam is one of those 18 types. He's one of those 18 men. And he, in 1 Kings chapter 12, once he comes into power, just like the Antichrist, he completely leads Israel into Baal worship. Now, the Antichrist will be a, a half-breed Jew out of Moab. And you get that from studying Judas Iscariot, who is the, also the son of perdition. There's only uh, two men in the Bible that are called that, and he is, you can get it working that system out that way. But, but the Antichrist will do exactly the same thing by splitting the tribes. And you'll find this in Zechariah chapter 11, verses 7 through 10, where he breaks the bond of the brotherhood of the nation of Israel. And uh, he divides them and ultimately defeats them. In Matthew chapter 25, you see the division. Ten versions, five are wise, five are foolish. He divides them. Now, for Israel historically... This all takes place, Solomon and David are on the throne around 900, uh, 1000 B.C., and so this takes place around 900 B.C., give or take a few years. But this, for the nation of Israel, will be the beginning of the end. Now, all this stuff deals with the tribulation, but I cannot just pass over the inspirational stuff that you'll want to see from this. And the great model here that the devil wants to defeat Israel, defeat you, your family, and any church will be the same system of dividing and conquering. The key to Christianity is unity of the church. The key to any church is the unity that the church has. And, uh, you know, the problem we have in America today, uh, or paramount, and it's a terrible thing, and America obviously uh, has seen uh, uh, the sun set on her greatness, and we know where we're at in this generation. But the problem with America is just one thing. It's a nation divided against itself. We have been divided. And uh, so, you know, we see that. Now, inspirationally, uh, the key word will be unity. And with unity, there are three aspects to a biblical fundamental unity, a unity of mind, a unity of spirit, and a unity of labor or work or ministry together, a oneness in that. And the first thing that you're going to see is in a practical application is the devil wants to divide your family. Families fail. My whole world is built around trying to help families get themselves back together. Husband and wives, their marriages fail. Uh, Kids are rebellious to their parents and Christians lose their kids to the world. And it's a fact where the first thing he wants to attack is the number one issue by which God has told us through the Word of God that he wants to reach the world. And that will be through families. You want to remember how the devil works versus how God works through the Bible. The Bible will, the first thing the Bible will do in your world will divide you. It'll divide you from the world. It'll divide you through salvation from the world. And then... It will put all things together for you once it divides you out of the world. The devil will put all things in your life first and then divide you from the things of God. That's the way he works. It's just that simple. The second thing will be the devil dividing you out of the word of God. And of course, uh, uh, you're either going to rightly divide the word of truth or you're going to wrongly divide it. And the Bible talks about in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3, the unity of the spirit. And when you get out of the unity of the church body, you're headed for trouble. You really are. 
and uh, it's going gonna, it's gonna to manifest itself not only in your family, but your own personal relationship with the Word of God. And I don't care, uh, I've seen it all my ministry, I don't care what you claim to believe about the Bible, I don't care what you claim to believe about it. When you get outside the structure and the unity of the church, you're headed into heresy at some point in your life. And every kid, every person that ever got messed up in, in heresy of teaching something or in a cult someplace, it started right there. And Christianity today will divide us from the third thing, and that will be dividing of the Word of God, which has led to the dividing of the church. And uh, we have a today uh, a great division uh, in Christianity and churches. And it is simply a division between what the God, Word of God and the Word of men. And 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10 says, Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing. That is so important. Bible doctrine has a pattern to it that has to stay the same. You're going to find people, find guys, I've found them all my life, that all come up with some new doctrine that nobody has ever believed, and to them it is the you know, second coming of truth to their life, which is nothing more than heresy. And you see it all the time. And he says, we all have to speak the same thing. And there's a whole concept to that. And there be no divisions among you that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind. Now that mind is, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And what happens is, is the church uh, you know, gets divided, and the devil divides it by uh, taking and doing all the things that, that he does. Now, the second thing, he says, a fool when he is filled with meat. Now, we want to talk about this. This will be a really good uh, doctrinal and an inspirational application. The doctrinal application here will be uh, in the tribulation period. Once the nation of Israel is divided, they're divided into two. And we've seen this in the book of Proverbs. Wise man and a foolish man. And as I said earlier, in Matthew chapter 25, you have 10 versions. Five are wise, five are foolish. They are divided. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, and other places too, meat in the Bible will always be a picture of Bible doctrine or Bible teaching. And doctrinally, this will be dealing with the foolish people in the tribulation who get deceived by the Antichrist false meat or false teaching. A while back when we came through Proverbs chapter 23, I showed you this in verses 1, 2, and 3 where it says, uh, and this is a tribulation context now, but it's true in a practical sense too. Be careful who you listen to. Be careful what somebody tries to teach you. And he says in verse 1 of chapter 23, when thou sittest to eat with a ruler, in this case this will be the Antichrist, consider diligently what is before thee. And put a knife to thy throat, if thou be a man given to appetite, be not desirous of his dainties, for they are deceitful meat. Now this is a picture of somebody in the tribulation, the Antichrist throwing a banquet for them, trying to win them over. And what he's saying is here that when you sit down with anybody, you, you, you look what is before you, not just at the food, but the motive behind the food. And the deceitful meats here will be a meat or a banquet to get the fools to buy into his false doctrine, so it's called deceitful meat. And that's what the Antichrist does in the tribulation period. In the first three and a half years, he peace and safety. He lulls everybody to sleep. And then 
he presents to them his false doctrine or his false, uh, his, his meat, a deceitful meat. And in the tribulation, when the foolish man takes of this foolish deceitful meat, Matthew chapter 25, verse 30, Matthew chapter 25, verse 41, says that he winds up in the lake of fire. Uh, and this is where he goes. Now, at the same time, there will be a great practical uh, lesson here that uh, I've seen uh, over the years uh, in many things in dealing with people. Inspirationally, it will be a pastor or a Christian who basically spends their whole lives getting the Bible, but for the wrong reason. And you're going to find people out there who study the Bible, King James Bible. They study the Bible, they, they, they do everything that they do, but they do it for themselves. And, uh, you know, John, their personal gain. John chapter 1, verse 17 says that when Jesus Christ came, he came by grace and truth. And that is a great passage. You have to have, when you have the truth of the Word of God, it will always require the grace of God for it to be used properly. And the two balance each other out. It's a checks and balance system. Having the truth of God is no good if you don't have the grace of God to know how to use it. We saw this in Proverbs chapter 30. We started out with this in Proverbs chapter 30, verses 1 through 9 with Agar. And the two things that he asked for before he died, it was clear. He wants the truth. He wants vanity and lies put away from him. He wants the truth, but then he wants the balance in that truth. That's grace. You know, I, 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 I deal with people all the time. My whole world since I got into the ministry has been helping pastors and, and young guys, young gals uh, that were part of my church to try to learn the Bible and try to get the Bible uh, into their life. And I want to tell you, uh, at this stage of my life, you know, uh, you know, I could, I could write volumes on, on, on what I've seen and how the Word of God either affects people in a good way or a bad way. And, uh, you know, it's, it all depends on that person's attitude of heart toward the Word of God. And, you know, in looking at this from a practical application, allow me to give you just a, a couple of, uh, a couple of uh, examples here. First of all, we're going to have God's people who allow the Word of God to do their job in their life. And this will be most of the people that I've had in my world all my life in the almost 50 years of the ministry. People will uh, fundamentally, uh, uh, excuse me, the Bible will fundamentally do two things for you if you will allow it to. And uh, first of all, it'll change you inwardly by sealing your soul with the Holy Spirit of God and putting you into the body of Christ. And then it'll change you outwardly. Once you get changed inwardly, things change outwardly. It will transform you, uh, you know, through a transformation that will change you once you get changed on the inside. And let me just say this to you. A key to a changed life will be uh, the, the proof of a changed life. It simply will be our submission and our submitting ourselves to a authority structure. That's the difference between before a person gets saved and after they get saved. Before they get saved, they have no alliance to anything but themselves in most cases. Once you get saved, Salvation is basically a submission on your part and my part to an authority structure. It's that authority structure that's going to do everything for you that God's Word uh, wants to do. And that's how you grow in grace and truth. Nobody gets saved and just starts flapping their wings on their own out there. That's exactly how you get into trouble. 
your whole world in these guys' cases will revolve around them, uh, you know, uh, and, 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 and allowing the world to see Christ in you, the difference and the change, and not just the change in how you look at the world, but the change in how you submit yourself now to a final absolute authority. Now, let me be clear on this. I get criticized all my life for my stand against Christian higher education. And I make no apology for it. I, I really don't. I really don't care what most people think at this point in my life. I've been around long enough to, to see the, uh, the, you know, the fallacy of most people that, and what they taught over the years that didn't pay off for them. So let me be clear in what I'm about to say. So you out there uh, are listening to it can get it. Everybody here pretty much the choir this morning, so we're all good. Uh, but, there, but I'm going to be clear. There will be no, listen to me, there will be no biblical ministry, work, website, online ministry, organization, whatever it may be, or any Christian who is not under the authority and the structure of a New Testament local church. That's God's structure. That's God's program. You know, I learned many, many years ago that in the Christian world, we have people who are Christian and people who are spiritual. And they are usually worthless. I am not interested in who's Christian and who's spiritual. I'm interested in who is biblical and scriptural because there lies the bottom line. God's structure and accountability system is a non-negotiable doctrine. I'll tell you something else I've learned over my years. Most of God's people that, that don't fall into the structure and want to do their own thing, uh, they, they have to get into a pattern where they pick and choose out of the Bible what they want. I've seen them take great stands for the great things in the Bible, but there are things in their own life that they pick and choose not to deal with that doesn't fit into their agenda. And I'm telling you, it doesn't matter how you rationalize it or what you think or how you try to get around it. If you're not under and involved in a New Testament structure of a New Testament church under a biblical New Testament pastor, you're out. It's just that simple. I don't care what you think. I don't care how you try to rationalize it. I don't care what you say. God's structure, and I want to be clear, God's structure there's a New Testament biblical local church. And I'll tell you why. Because the Christian life is fundamentally about two things after we get saved. You know what they are? Accountability and responsibility. It's just that simple. And uh, accountability and responsibility through a, a New Testament structure. And when you have Christians who use the Bible to puff themselves up, and boy, they do, they're just like in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 2, the church at Corinth, where Paul says, you got, you got the Bible, and you, wanna, you know all these things, and all you do with it is puff yourself up that people around you will see how spiritual you really are. Their whole world will revolve around themselves and uh, wanting what uh, people to see about them and what men will say about them. And, you know, I've seen them. I've dealt with them all my life. You may know uh, or think you know things about the Bible, and maybe you do. Here's the problem. It's not what you know about the Bible. I mean, I've met people all my life who really knew the Bible, 
but they were worthless. You know why? Because knowing the Bible doesn't change you unless you put yourself under the structure and the authority and the responsibility of what God has given you. And you know what you do? You, act, you wind up like Acts chapter 17, verse 26, the Athenians. Always running around trying to find something new doctrine that nobody knows that God only gave you. And you'll always get into trouble. You know why? Because there's no accountability and there's no structure in your life. And you're left to yourself to, to get into trouble. And then you, you get like, I said, you get like the Athenians that uh, you come to the place where, you know, God gives you something that he gave nobody else. And here you are. And yet when you look at your life, you're outside any structure and the accountability of a New Testament local church. Let me tell you something. Listen to me. Always stay away from people like that. They're, 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 they're deceitful. Because at the core root of their issue, they'll have no submissiveness to any structure of authority. Even though, oh, oh, they'll tell you, yes, they do. Yes, they do. No, no. You have no pastor that you're accountable to. You have no church that you're accountable to. And you have no responsibility to any structure that God put in place. Your whole life has been picking and choosing out of the Bible what you want to have and, to, uh, you know, to fit your agenda and uh, no one to hold you accountable. And you like to impress people with the deep things, you know, the things that God gave you, all the things that when you put it to the six-point test in the Bible, <laughs> you're a heretic, just that simple. You know, if I've learned anything about human nature, I, I mean, if I've learned anything about myself, forget you. If I learn anything about myself, you know what I've learned? I learned when I have a problem that I know really needs to be fixed, I'd much rather work on a problem that doesn't need to be fixed. Because we, as human beings, don't want to look at the things in our life that really need to be fixed. You know what the church does? You know what preaching does? You know what a pastor does? You know what the Word of God through a structure does? Forces you to look at those things. And, uh, but you ignore that. And it's a thing where, you know, uh, uh, it, it, it's just, it's, it's like, you know, you leave what you don't like that doesn't fit for you, but you go, oh, God is so good and God has given you so much. God hasn't given you anything because he will not outside the structure. So when you see that, paint it the color that it is. And, you, you, you know, those kind of people fill their lives with people who are as stupid as they are or dumber than they are. And, uh, you, know, uh, you know, and they, they, they think they're this shining star of truth in Christianity. Hey, let me give you a second test. Ask your kids what kind of shining star they think you are. Because most of these guys, their families aren't in church either. They've lost their kids and they go around talking to everybody about what God has given them. Ask your kids what they think of you. There's a good test for you. You are the fool who was filled with meat. You know, I, I, I had a guy one time, oh, it's happened so many times, you know. They'll get this heresy going, this teaching to going, and, uh, you know, they'll, they'll call me up, and, and uh, sometimes they show up to Bible study, you know, uh, and they'll call up uh, me on the phone, and they'll, they'll lay this thing out, and they always say the same thing. And they'll always say, that they got this teaching that nobody's ever heard, nobody's ever had. I mean, it's just out there, man. And they all will do the same thing. They'll say, well, I want you to know, I, uh, I ran this by so-and-so, and he agrees with me. I had one guy one time had this teaching out of Revelation, 
uh, Bob Gregg knows this story, uh, Tate got a revelation that was just as off the wall as it could be. And he would teach it, and when he would teach it, because it was so out there, he would say, well, I ran this by Brother Mel Sabaka, and he thought it was okay. You know what I say to that? Let me ask you a question. If God gave it to you, why do you got to run it by anybody? I mean, when Paul got the gospel from Jesus Christ himself there in Arabia, wherever he was, that he run around, he had a brand new teaching. Nobody had ever heard it before. Nobody ever understood it before. That he, you, one time did you hear him say, well, I ran this by so-and-so and he thought it was okay. Come on. You know why you do that? Because you're not sure it's right yourself. If God gave it to you, man's going to confirm that? Brother, there's a lots of things that I learn about the Bible and I teach about the Bible. I am not going to run by somebody and say, hey, what do you think about this? I know what it says. Crazy. Absolutely crazy. And then sometimes, this is why the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 19, that heresies are important in the body of Christ. We look at people who teach bad doctrine or heresies and we think they're bad. No, not from a church standpoint because they'll always fall into that six-point of biblical heresy and false teaching that exposes them. I mean, there are six things through the New Testament. If you got some foreign doctrine or something you came up with, brother, it's going to nail you. And that's why it's important. Paul says they're okay. They, they show you who has been, who's the real deal by who's not the real deal because you have a pattern. You have a structure. You know, and then sometimes these guys will get into pastoring a church. You know, I, uh, I, I know pastors. Uh, at any one time in my life today, I'm probably dealing with 10 or 15 of them and uh, you know, call me and I'm trying to help them. And they got, uh, some guys are good, some guys you just can't help. I mean, you just can't. And uh, you know, the bad ones are not bad guys. They're, they're not. I know, some of my, I know some guys that are absolutely some of the nicest guys on the planet. But the problem is they're unteachable. You can't teach them anything. And, uh, you know, I, at the same time, uh, you know, they're, uh, they become uh, the root issue will be, always be authority. And they will, they will they, you know, they'll, they'll, never, they'll never be able to submit to any church to learn the ministry or how it should go. They got this desire that you can't teach them anything and they'll come in and get a little bit of this and a little bit of that and then, you know, they, they don't, they don't get sent out from a church to start a church. They just go out. I got a guy up north that, you know, and, and most people don't know. I've been in this town since 1975, end of 75. I know everybody. I know everybody. I wouldn't give any names out, but there's a big church here in town where they're running four or 5,000 people who is an apostate church up here in Lee Summit. And uh, it's a thing where they don't believe the Bible, don't believe anything about the Bible, but everybody thinks it's the absolutely greatest thing in the world. What you don't know, and I never say this because I don't care, 25, 30 years ago, I sat down with that young guy before he ever became a pastor and tried to get him to understand how important the Word of God was, and he just blew it off. I've seen him that way. See, you look at him and you say, oh, wow, look at what he's got. I look at him and know back to the day when he said no thanks when it came to the Bible. I don't say anything about it. I don't care. But I'm telling you, I've watched these guys since 1975, 76. I know these guys. 
There's a little guy up north there that, uh, you know, uh, I've known, uh, uh, what, 30, 35 years. And he's been in out of every church. He could never submit himself to any pastor, to any church, in any place. So you know what they do? Because he can't submit himself to any authority, he goes and starts his own church, and now he becomes his own authority. And that's how it works. I've seen it. (laughs) That's the way it goes, man. And it's the fact that they, you know, they never grow. I mean, I've seen these guys be there for 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 years, man, and they're still running 10 people. And, uh, you know, they just, uh, uh, they, 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 they just, many times they're, they become so legalistic in their approach. And uh, they have no grace at all. Then you have some guys who are really nice guys. They're wishy-washy. They have, they have grace, but they have no truth. And both of them have no clue of what they're doing. They're, they're the fool who is filled with meat. And most of them, I must confess, <laughs> most of them are terrible preachers. Not that I'm not, but I mean, most of them are in my boat. They're terrible preachers. I call them the BBBs, boring beyond belief. I mean, they just, they, I mean, it's incredible. I've heard some guys get up and preach. We've had guys here that, that are no longer here, you know, that they, we used to give them a shot down at the mission to preach. And I'll be honest, you went 35 minutes and gave me a migraine. I never did understand where you were going. I never did understand what was happening in your message. I mean, if, if you had an original thought, it would die of boredom. I mean, it's a thing where it's just, it's incredible. And it's because they won't submit themselves to learn anything. They really won't. And they, they, they want everybody to look at them, but they lack the depth. And, you know, I find guys all my life who, who are in the ministry and they want to be taught. They want to learn. And that's what you look for. And I've had guys like this in my ministry all my life. I have a list of names in my Bible uh, that I've come across over the years right next to 2 Timothy 3, 7, where it talks about ever learning but never able to come to the truth because that's where these guys are. They come around to learn the Bible and not to take what they can get to do what God wants them to do, but they can uh, puff themselves up and impress people. You know, and after 10, 15, 20, 30 years, you know, uh, um, if they're still around, you're still making your little mud pies in your little mud puddle that you had for the last 25 years. And they are the fools who are filled with meat. Hey, I'm going to tell you something, and you better learn this. This is one of the greatest truths anybody ever gave me. Now, you want to write this one down. We are at our best when we're not trying to be anything. And boy, that is so true. We are at our best as a child of God when we are not trying to be anything. Now, the third thing in verse 23 here is the odious woman when she is married. And... Uh, The key word here will be odious. Odious means hateful. It means wicked. And we saw her last week in verse 20 and uh, all all through the book of Proverbs uh, as we come through and really all through the Bible. And we know now that this woman in Proverbs who is the wicked woman, the evil woman, the strange woman, uh, who is identified as the adulterous woman is clearly identified in Proverbs chapter 17 and 18 as the uh, great whore revelation of Babylon mystery religion. Now, I want to talk for a moment about her marriage because it says here, an odious woman when she is married. I think that's important that you, now that we have defined her, 
uh, we see this. Now, the model for this, if you don't have it already in your Bible, will be back in 1 Kings chapter 18. And this will be the story about Ahab, who was the wickedest king that Israel ever had, and his wife Jezebel. And, uh, you know, it's a thing where, uh, you know, to this day, adulterous women or whorish women are all given the characteristic name of a Jezebel. And that uh, because it goes back to the Bible. You'll also find that in Revelation chapter 2, verse 20, and Revelation chapter 2, verse 14, which is in the period of the church age, you're going to find that she shows up teaching her doctrine in the New Testament. Oh, you've got to see the parallels here. Now, I'm going to make some blank statements here that probably on the uh, YouTube this morning will uh, maybe have some of you hit the delete button or uh, go cattywampus through your TV set. But uh, if you do, wear rubber shoes so you don't get electrocuted. But uh, as I said earlier, Old Testament Baal worship will become New Testament Roman Catholicism. And the definitive chapter on this will be Revelation chapter 17. There's seven things or characteristics in our world today about the Roman Catholic Church that are found clearly defined for you in the tribulation with this whorish woman. And, uh, the, and the marrying of the devil and this woman, this female deity, today she's called Mary, down through history. Next week, we're going to celebrate Easter. Uh, Easter is the word for Ashtar. Uh, no New Testament church anywhere down through history other than the, uh, you know, it got caught into America. But you know, the Bible believers down through the Waldensians and the Albigensians, <laughs> nobody had an Easter service. They understood where Easter came from. Easter is our word for Ashtar, the god of fertility that comes in. And so Christianity, uh, about 300, 400, 500 A.D. with the Roman Catholic Church, tagged it to a Christian holiday and voila, much like Christmas and much like, you know, everything else. Uh, you know, we have people, dumb people, stupid pastors. They get up there and I've heard them preach on Halloween. Oh, you know, I'm no, I'm no fan of Halloween. Uh, you know, I, I think the honest thing about it is that your kids get to dress up like goblins and demons and play out the role that they actually are every day in your family. But it's a thing where, you know, we look at things like that, and I've heard them get up there and, and just lamb blast, you know, Halloween, which is fine. I have no problem with it. But then they'll have an Easter service or a Christmas service, and they'll never understand and come to the reality because they have no truth that Easter and Christmas are probably much more pagan than Halloween ever thought about being on its best day, if you know your Bible. But, of course, Easter and Christmas come in with the marriage. And the marriage takes place around what? I don't know, 313, 325, somewhere in the 3rd century, going into the 4th century, when the Emperor Constantine, who was a pagan Roman emperor, gets saved, so to speak, uh, by becoming baptized. And then he starts the Roman Catholic Church. And what he did was pass the Edict of Milan, which brought all the pagans into the church to establish his church. And when the pagans came in, they brought in Christmas, Jeremiah chapter 10. They brought in Easter, book of Acts. And they brought all these things. And overnight, the pagan holidays became Christian holidays identified with something in the Bible. And it's just the way that it works. And I wish I had time to do that. You know, last thir two Thursday nights ago, as I said, some Jamie called in the question about Judges chapter 17 and 18. And I laid out to you how the, the Old Testament Baal worship was nothing more than New Testament Catholicism by showing you in the Old Testament that they had men who were young men who became a father and a priest to older people, got a special suit of clothes, had a house of gods, 
all the things that go along with it. And from 325 A.D. to this day, 2020, she has marched down through history with her husband, and as the verse says, she has disquieted the earth, and the best is coming. Now, last week in the tribulation, we saw verse 20. We saw uh, her as the adulterous woman who eats something. And I told you that she eats two things in the Bible. And again, it was a test to see where you're all at. Everybody was right. Nobody was wrong. You just kind of missed a couple of things. But I would, you know, nobody got way outlined and everybody was pretty much in contact. But Sharon Gowans nailed it. And uh, she sent me an email and I even had the verses. So let me just walk you through this here, and uh, this is important with what we're dealing with. First of all, turn over to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, verse 20 says, Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee. He's talking to the church now. Because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel. Here it is, Jezebel. This is the Thyatira church period, time frame in history, 500 A.D. to around 1,000. Thou sufferest that woman Jezebel. So there's a female woman, religious woman, that is now starting to seduce the church. And look how she seduces them. To commit fornication, that's spiritual fornication, and to eat things, here it comes, eat things sacrificed unto idols. Now in history, this will be the beginning of what we know as the canonization of the Roman Catholic Mass eating the host that has been mystically, magically changed by the Catholic priest into the absolute literal body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, most of you don't know this guy, and uh, you may be able to find some things on him on a deal, but he was a, a very important part of my life when I got saved. His name was Alex Dunlap. And Alex Dunlap was a missionary to Roman Catholics. He had a house that he called St. Peter's House, and uh, it's where that Catholic priest and nuns who got saved and got out of the Catholic Church had a place to go and uh, get re whatever they needed, because the Catholic Church many times made life very hard for them. He died of cancer uh, a number of years ago, but he really helped me in so many different ways uh, understand how to deal with Catholics. Now, let me just say, when I was young, uh, just got right with the Lord. I had just gotten out of the military, and, you know, I had a lot of rough sides to me. And uh, I was much more militant. Uh, I had more truth than I had grace, let's put it that way. God has taught me over the years and balanced me out a little bit. But back then, I mean, uh, I, I realized what the cults were, and I went after them. I mean, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I just did. And I'm not saying I didn't learn a lot. I put guys around me who really understood these things, but... There was a bunch of us guys who uh, would, uh, um, yeah, uh, I hate to confess this, but confess your faults one to another. We would put together what we called saturation missions. And we would, we were all ex-military guys, and we, uh, we wanted to get the truth out. And we would go into Roman Catholic seminaries. There were several of them in Canton. And they had the groves and the statues and all that. And we'd go in late at night, dressed in black, and we would, we would saturate the place with gospel tracts. I mean, we would. Now, some of the guys got out of hand and put cigarettes between the fingers of the saints, uh, uh, you know, um, and, uh, and some of them turned the statues upside down. I get it. But, but anyway, it was one of those things where back in the day, you know, we had a zeal that wasn't always according to knowledge. 
But we wanted to, we went after these guys to try to get the gospel out. I remember one time on the altar up there in a Catholic church, there's a little golden box. That golden box holds the hosts that have been consecrated that are actually turned into the body of Christ now that uh, they have to be held in a special place. In fact, in Roman Catholic dogma, if, um, if the Catholic priest uh, drops one of those wafers that is now God's body on the floor, there's an eight-hour procession to pick it up. If he takes the wine that's turned into the actual blood and that gets spilt, there's a, a great thing that has to be done to do that, to pick God back up off the floor. So you got to understand that. Well, this guy got a surprise when he opened it up and there was a tract in everybody having done that, 10 reasons why I'm not a Roman Catholic. And, you know, and those are the things. And God gave me a lot of opportunities. I was working at a factory and I would uh, was witness to Catholics all the time. And I'd get them so mad that they would, one guy in particular said, I want you to come over and sit out with my priest. He's going to straighten you out. And I said, absolutely, I'd love to. And I wanted to show this guy how that the priest was completely, um, and, and, and I would try to tell him that the, the little wafer that you eat is actually the body of Jesus Christ, and you're eating it. Cannibalistically, you're eating it. Oh, he just went crazy about that. So we got into there, and the priest was your typical Catholic priest, you know. And he said, well, thank you for coming over. I hear that you and my uh, parishioner here are, are having some issues. And I said, no, not really. I said, I just got one question for you. And I pulled out my host, which I had encased in, in plastic. And I said, is this Jesus Christ to you? Now, he playing shifty. He said, oh, of course not. And I said, yes, it is. And he says, no, no, no. He says, that one has not been consecrated. And I said, yes, it has. Well, you should have saw how nervous he got at that point. He says, well, 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 well how did you get a consecrated waste? I said, it's easy. I stuck my tongue on that a priest. I said, I went to mass. I knelt down. The priest came by. I went, he put that wafer on my mouth after it was turned into the body of Christ. I bowed my head, <laughs> spit it out, kept it in my hand, went home, put it in plastic. Now, my question is this for him. Is this, is this the true body of Jesus Christ? He about had a heart attack. Before I was done that night, he offered me a thousand unconsecrated ones for the one that was consecrated. You know why? Because in his mind, I was holding the very body of Jesus Christ. And it's as simple as this. You know, it's a thing where that body wafer is called the doctrine of transubstantiation. And it's a thing where it's a thing where that priest through the Catholic Church takes that wafer, and they're all made by monks and nuns. It's a little round thing about that big. And when he stands up there and goes, I'm anonymous, fee fi fo fum, and all that stuff, he has the magical power to turn that wafer into the absolute literal body of Jesus Christ. And for a Catholic, when you ask a Catholic, have you ever received Christ as his personal Savior? He's going to say, oh, yeah, I have. You're going to say, wow, he's saved. No, 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 no. When you ask him if he's received Christ, he's talking about last Sunday when he ate Christ. Not when he asked him into his heart. The wine, same thing. The priest gets up there and through the mystical, magical powers of transubstantiation, he has the ability to turn that wine into the actual blood of Jesus Christ. And that's why she says the first thing that they eat is things sacrificed to idols in the mass. Now, <laughs> uh, here we go. 
Now, this all changes in the tribulation period, and I hopefully, you know, you stay with me through here. If you've got any kind of reasonable brain cells left, you'll, you'll be able to see how this thing works. Now, well, the second thing that she eats will be people. Oh, yeah. Let me say a blank statement, get it out of the way. If you're a Roman Catholic and you're listening to this, you're a cannibal. The doctrine of substantiation in your church tells you that they turn that wafer into the actual literal body and you eat it and the actual blood and you drink it. And in the tribulation period, when the Antichrist comes to power, he's going to have a whole bunch of people who are already systematically in time with this, and they're going to, do, they're going to drink, drink offerings of blood and eat the flesh of the Jews that you catch as a sacrifice in a mask to the Antichrist and his wife, Jezebel. Now, let me show you this. I told you, when you get into this thing in Proverbs 30, brother, if it's not for the faint of heart or for those who can scratch their head. I'm telling you something. Let me show you why Catholics, Baptists, and stupid neo-evangelicals get caught up in this and can't see it and make an alliance and an accord in 1994 for the evangelism of the world with the Roman Catholic Church. Are you kidding me? Okay, here we go. Follow me along now. Let's put a paper trail to it. Psalm 16, 3 and 4. Context, tribulation. But to the saints that are in the earth and to the excellent in whom is all my delight, their sorrow shall be multiplied, here it comes, that hasten after another God, here it comes, their drink offerings of blood will I not offer nor take up their names unto my lips. Okay, a drink offering of blood. Now watch this, Isaiah 65, verse 11. Context, tribulation. But ye are they that forsake the Lord, that forgot my holy mountain, that prepare a table for that troop, and furnish a drink offering unto that number. You know what that number is? Guess, 666. Revelation 17, 2. Context, tribulation, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. All right. Revelation 17, 6. Made drunk, verse 2. Now look at Revelation 17, 6. And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. Now, here's a woman who takes them and kills them and drinks their blood in an offering. Now, maybe, maybe, okay, maybe right now it would be a good time to broaden your horizons a little bit and introduce to you to an old friend of the Roman Catholic Church, yes, Count Dracula. Now, Bram Stoker in 1897 revised the idea of a blood-sucking vampire named Dracula who lived in Transylvania, whose phone number was Transylvania 65000. And it, it, it's in Romania. And, you know, Dracula, as we all know him, black cape, Belagosi type, and he walked around uh, biting people's necks and drinking their blood. 
And that's where Bram Stoker started the whole thing. And most people know that and know the Dracula. I mean, it's been on TV a million times, a million remakes of it. Ah, here we go historically. The story of Dracula is a true story. It goes back to Romania in Transylvania around the 14 and the 1500s. There was a man there who was a Roman Catholic named Valad who joined a secret organization of the Roman Catholic Church called the Dragon. He had a son whose name was Glad who took over the empire after he died. And he named his son Glad, changed his name to Dracula, which means son of the dragon. Now, Transylvania, Romania in 1400 and 1500 was the hotbed of New Testament Bible Christianity under John Huss. John Huss and the Hussites were Bible believers that were severely persecuted by the Roman Catholic Church. Dracula, as his dad, had a unique ability of catching New Testament Christians and impaling them on spikes. And for all of their lives, they were going to Mass, celebrating the death of the Christians that they... You can go to any library and get this. It's on the Internet. And they were part of the Roman Catholic Church, the Order of the Dragon... And all of their life, they ate the body of Jesus Christ in the mass and drank the blood. And so when Bram Stoker put it all together, <laughs> he had a great thing uh, to, to look at and to work with. And that's where all this stuff gets started. Everything goes back to the Bible. I mean, come on. Mary had a little lamb. Its fleece was white as snow. And everywhere that Mary went, the lamb was sure to go. You bet. Mary did have a little lamb and his fleece was white as snow. It all comes there. I don't have time to get into high diddle diddle, cat and a fiddle, and the cow jumps over the moon, but that's a good one too. Now, the real story here, and I'll teach you sometime on Thursday night, is, is uh, that puts us all together is the vampire angels from Jupiter, which is a great study. If you really get me a couple of drinks in me and get me loosened up a little bit, I'll tell you about the time that I was in Romania, discipling churches with a team, and I stayed with a house in Transylvania, right in the middle of it all. And my encounter at 4 o'clock in the morning, that scared the fire out of me. And it was a thing where uh, they didn't have inside bathrooms. They had outside bathrooms in a wooden shed, and they're about 100 yards from the house. So at 4 o'clock in the morning, with a full moon, you get this thing and the clouds over it, you understand this thing? I'm going down here, you know, <laughs> my flashlight doesn't work. And, uh, never mind, it was quite an experience, but anyway. But in the tribulation, here's the deal, this is what they do. They catch the Jews and they make a sacrifice of them. Now here's how it works. Revelation chapter 6 verse 9 says that they are beheaded. Uh, they're on an altar, just like the sacrifices in the Old Testament, Leviticus 1.5, 1, 1.15, 1, and 5.8. They cut their heads off. You'll remember in the question that was asked a couple of weeks ago on Thursday night about the woman that was the, taken in a concubine, and you scratch your head and wonder why she was cut into 12 pieces and then sent to all the tribes of Israel. It's a picture of what's coming. Okay, ready for this? Here we go. Here's carry out in the tribulation period. Psalms 14.4, context, tribulation. 
Have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge who eat up my people as they eat bread? Hosea 8.3, context, tribulation. They, sacri they sacrifice flesh for the sacrifice of mine offerings and eat it, but the Lord accepteth them not. Micah 3, 1 through 3, context, tribulation. And I hear, I pray you of the heads of Jacob and ye princes of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know judgment, who hate the good and love the evil, who pluck off the skin from off their flesh, for off their bones, who also eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off them and break their bones and chop them in pieces as for the pot, as for the flesh within the cauldron. Context, tribulation. You've heard Irish stew? This is Jewish stew. Psalm 44, 11. Hast thou given us like sheep appointed for meat to be eaten? Hast thou sacrificed us among the heathen? Context, tribulation. Psalm 44, 19 through 22. Context, tribulation. Though thou hast sore broken us in place of the dragons, there it is, and covered us with the shadow of death. That's a good study in the tribulation period. If ye have forgotten the name of our God or stretched out our hands to a strange God, shall not God search this out, for he knoweth the secrets of the heart? Yea, for thy sake we are killed all day long and counted as sheep for the slaughter. Sheep for the slaughter to be eaten in a sacrifice. Isaiah 6, verses 11 through 13. Then said I, Lord, how long? And he answered, until the cities be wasted without inhabitant, and the houses without man, and the land be utterly desolate. Now watch it. And the Lord hath removed men far away, and they be great forsaking in the midst of the lands. But ye shall be, uh, you shall, uh, but yet in it shall a tenth, and it shall return, and shall be eaten as a teal tree, and as an oak, whose substance is in them, when they cast their leaves, so the holy seed of their substance thereof. The it coming back that was cast away is men. Notice, they're even biblical, a tenth. They're tithing off of what they're eating. Now, what are you going to do with that? You see, Proverbs chapter 30 really gets you down in the depth of the tribulation. It opens up a can of worms, brother, that you're never going to get the lid back on again. Old Testament Baal worship. We have the word, I love to study words in the Bible, and I love to study words in the English language. You take the word cannibal. Cannibal is a connection of two words. Canna is meat. Baal is Baal worship. So you have somebody that eats meat, human flesh, it's a cannibal. Flesh, cannibal, bull, Baal worship. That's where the word comes from. It's just that simple. I love words. In the Bible, the Antichrist is likened to a cat. So you have in Daniel chapter 7 that he's a leopard. In, in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, he's a lion. He's also a leopard in Revelation 13, 12. So you take the word, I love words. Alcoholic is a good one. Alcoholic. Alka, alcohol, holic, holy, holy given to. You know what an alcoholic is? An alcoholic is an alcoholic, holy given to alcohol. You know what a Catholic is? Catholic. Cataholic. Someone wholly given to a cat. What do you do with your spare time? I mean, come on. I've been criticized all my life about, you know, my, my stand against uh, higher education, uh, rather in, in a biblical sense. You know why that is? Because I know a little bit about history. 
I know that after the Reformation uh, in Europe, the Oxford movement put out by the Jesuits, Roman Catholic, was to come back and bring through the Protestant seminaries all of the churches back under Rome and all Bible colleges. Maybe not all to a great degree, but I'm going to tell you this right now. And you learn this by studying words. All Bible colleges, all colleges really, but I'm preaching about Bible colleges. All Bible colleges have felt at some point the presence of the Jesuits coming in and destroying what they do, either directly or indirectly. I mean, it destroyed the Southern Baptist Church in the 1920s and the 1930s, and it's crept its way into every Bible college today. It certainly has destroyed uh, the secular colleges. You know, every revolution on this planet that ever started, do you know where it started? It started in the colleges. And people look at that and they say, well, I just don't know about that. And, you know, I think you're stretching it. And I think, no, I'm not stretching it at all. You know why? Because everybody, you know what I found with preachers coming out of Bible colleges? They're more loyal to their school than they are the book that God gave them. Now, do you know why that is? Because it all goes back to the Roman Catholic Church. Their school is their alma mater. Alma mater, really? Alma, Hebrew for virgin. Mater, Greek for mother. Your alma mater is your virgin mother. Now, you're too stupid to see it. And I'll tell you something else. Right now, as we sit here, as you listen to me right now, you know what they're doing in Europe and even places in America? It's on the website. Right now, the great minds are trying to get people to rethink with the population of the earth and the shortage of food that just get away with this idea of not eating people. And that's where it's going. Solent Green, the movie. It's coming. And then, uh, you know, uh, and, uh, it's going to give us a whole new approach to what you're going to face. I mean, when they start eating people, you can have Korean, you can have China, have Mexican, Japanese, Puerto Rican, white people, white bleat, black meat. I mean, you can have it all. That's where it's going. And you know what? People are so stupid. There's a, I love the Twilight Zone. Two things in my life I thought were equal to the Bible as far as truth. One of them was Mad Magazine. I don't even think they made Mad Magazine anymore, but one time years ago, I used to love, it had a, it had a satire of truth that was unbelievable. I remember one time reading it, and there's this guy, and he, these two guys in this vintage World War II bomber. And there shows the cockpit, and there's bullet holes all around it, and the guy's laying over with a max blood running down his face, and the pilot's got blood running down his face, and there's bullet holes everywhere. And the pilot looks out the window, and he says, you think this is tough? Where do we get out of the hangar? That's life. You think life is rough where you got it now? Where do you get out there in the world? And I'll never forget Twilight Zone, my favorite one. It was a story of how aliens came to this earth. And they presented the leader of America, the president, with a book. And the name of the book was, beautiful book, was How to Serve Man. And they, they thought, wow, this alien race has come down. They want to serve us. They want to help us. And so they got to be friends with them. And then the aliens started saying, we want to take you back to our planet. It's so many at a time. And we want you to, we want you to uh, see our world. And, and so people were going. They were getting on a spaceship. They were taking them back. They'd come back. They'd take another load. Well, after four, five, six loads, this guy who w w was go wanted to go, he was a reporter, uh, he, the book, his buddy was trying to figure it all out, and the book of How to Serve Man, and, and he's going up the ramp, 
and they're closing the ramp, and the guy's running to the gate, and he says, I just, I just got the book. I just interpreted the book, How to Serve Man. It's our cookbook. That's what you got in the world today. That's what you got. The Roman Catholic Church have been eating Christ's flesh and drinking his blood for 1,800 years, and God's people are so stupid they can't even see it. Why? The odious woman when she is married. And this is what happens. And the last thing here, a handmaid that is heir to her mistress. Now, so far, we saw three things that disquieted the earth, that tears it up. That'll be in the tribulation period, and we know what those clearly are now. Now, the fourth thing the Bible says the earth cannot bear. So we want to look at this. And again, this goes back to Hagar uh, last week, uh, a man with a maid. Abraham taking Hagar, producing Ishbel through the handmaid. That becomes, uh, you know, that uh, uh, in time wants to overthrow uh, the nation of Israel. The Muslims, they claim that they, uh, that, that all the promises given to Isaac was actually given to them. And they have taken Hagar uh, and Abraham over Abraham and Sarah, which the Bible tells you very clearly. And, uh, you know, uh, and I want you to note in Genesis chapter 16, I want you to understand this. When all this went down with Abraham and Hagar in Genesis chapter 16, uh, God didn't go and hold Hagar or Ishmael accountable for what had happened. And there's a principle back in the Old Testament that God doesn't hold the, or put the sins of the fathers on the children. And uh, those kids, uh, Hagar was a slave. She had no choice. And obviously Ishmael had no choice. He wasn't born. And in Genesis chapter 16, uh, 17, uh, 7 through 16, excuse me, God gets Hagar alone and he tells her on no uncertain terms, look, I'm going to take care of you. Your son will be a great race. Your son will be a great, uh, uh, your people will be a great people. If you, Hagar, will return and submit yourself to Sarah as her handmaid. That's found in verse 9. And they did, but they didn't. Because in time, they revolted against that, became a half-breed tribe and a half-Jew half tribe, half-Hemitic tribe, that in time would go against everything that Israel had. And what happens today, and this is the verse, and it's also true in the tribulation context, a handmaid that is heir to her mistress. Hagar will not become the maid, will not submit herself to the mistress, but rather she wants to be the heir over the mistress in verse 23. And the earth will not bear that. That is the line in the sand that God draws. The earth will bear a lot of things and a lot of things will tear up the earth, but the gifts of God to Israel are without repentance, the gifts and callings, and the earth will not bear the Muslim race overtaking the Jewish race. I don't care what's going on in the Middle East right now. It'll all come back full circle at the second coming of Christ when God restores his people. Romans chapter 11, all Israel shall be saved. And all this is built around Matthew chapter 24 and is unrevealed each week we get a little closer, a little deeper, 
pull back a few more layers and see actually what's taking place. Now, this is why Proverbs chapter 30 is such a mystery to these guys who try to preach it or write books about it or write commentaries on it. They don't have a clue. You know why? Because going back to our guys who reject the authority of the Word of God and don't submit themselves to that authority, that's what they do. They think they're smarter than God. They think they're smarter and better than the Word of God. So when they see those things, they don't go to the book like we just did. All I did was take you through all of the verses. And one guy texts me, he goes, you please slow down. I got writer's cramp. I'm trying to get all these verses down. Well, I got a time element I got to do here. That's why you can go back and listen to it again. It's all built around the generation of Matthew chapter 24. And Proverbs chapter 30, without a doubt, is the greatest unknown chapter on opening up the details of Jacob's time of trouble, the tribulation period, right before the second coming of Christ and the day of the Lord. Next week, we're going to get into it, and if my memory serves me right, the next one, four things are all about the Jew themselves. And we'll work this thing through. We'll see it all the way through. Well, we'll hold up there. Uh, be safe this week, and stay in touch with everybody. And uh, remember, I love you. And if you need me, call me. I'm always available here for you, whatever we can do. And uh, let's ask God's blessing, and we'll be dismissed. Father, we do thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. We love you. Thank you today, Father, for all you do for us, for what you've given us. We ask your blessings uh, upon all that you have for us, Lord. Thank you for today. Thank you for the truth of your word. No matter how hard it may be, no matter, you may say, I never heard this before. There it is, the trail of truth through a book that is absolute and perfect that if we just come to it and submit ourselves to it through the structure of a New Testament local church under the accountability and the authority of a pastor, God will open up and reveal those things. We thank you for this. Thank you for the good people in our church. Thank you for those that, uh, Lord, uh, want to learn the Bible and have a willing spirit and for all the pastors that I deal with uh, throughout the week and the month, Lord, that all want to learn and all just trying to get the truth in these last days. Help us, Father, to always be there as a beacon of truth and light to show them and point them, not to ourselves, but to the greatest book the world has ever seen. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name for the sake we ask it. Amen. God bless you.